It's so good to be around God's Word again together. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We'll continue with the series on the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> this morning, we're thinking about prayer and fasting um, from Matthew 6. So we're reading from verse 5 down to verse 18. <clears throat> Matthew 6, and beginning to read at verse 5. This is God's word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This morning we continue to be taught by Jesus about religious actions or spiritual disciplines and what these look like in the kingdom of God. And this morning we're thinking about prayer and fasting. And our question this morning is very simple. How do true Christians, how do children of the kingdom pray and fast? So let's turn to the text and allow the words of Jesus to teach us. Look again at verse 5. When you pray, again as we pointed out last week, the presumption here is that the children of the kingdom do regularly pray. 
When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Jesus here is referring to private prayer. The Jews would have prayed three times daily, like Daniel. We all know Daniel for praying three times. And a trumpet would have sounded in the temple for daily sacrifice. And when this sound was heard, a Jew would have stopped whatever he was doing in order to kneel and pray. And I guess in many ways this is commendable. In fact, there are probably many lessons we could take from this. But Jesus is not speaking against this practice, but he's speaking against those who perhaps love to find themselves in public at these times. Perhaps even went out of their way to be in public at these times. And when they stopped to kneel and pray, others would see them and perhaps think, well, there's so-and-so, He or she, they're so spiritual. They're so holy. They're just so committed to prayer. The hypocrites also love to pray in the public worship context for the very same reason. Now perhaps it's difficult for us to identify with this particular scenario and um, we don't hear trumpet calls for prayer. Um, you'll not often see people kneeling around Craigavon for prayer. And I'm guessing you probably are not tempted to be doing that. But our motive for praying, and of course it's the motive here Jesus is getting at, we're pushed again and again in this sermon to search our hearts. Our motive for praying can be to be seen or heard and recognized for our praying. Perhaps at times you feel a little pride in your commitment to our prayer meetings here. Perhaps you're even tempted to look down on others for their lack of attendance. The commitment to prayer meetings may or may not be a sign of a great prayer life. Commitment to prayer things may or not be a sign that we are praying as children of the kingdom. No, we, we can't base all on prayer meeting attendance. Or perhaps when you are praying with, with others around, you're, you're eager for an amen or an agreement from another person. When have you ever heard someone say about another believer, so-and-so, they're, they're a great prayer. And perhaps there's an encouragement with that, but I wonder what, what really is meant by that. We need to be careful that our definition of great praying is a kingdom definition. Well, for those who are driven by this, Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. As we saw last week, that recognition, that praise, that is all they will get. There is nothing more to come. But, Jesus says, in contrast, children of the kingdom 
when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Get away off on your own. Somewhere quiet, no distractions. And I believe when and how you pray when you're alone will be the true test of your desire to pray and of your desire to be with God. The psalmist says, My heart says to you, Your face, O Lord, do I seek. You see, the, the desire, the motive in praying is to be with God. Again, we, we said last week that we, we need to be able to, to discern and we, we actually need to be distinct at times from nominal church or perhaps from the religious establishment. See, those in the kingdom, they do not view prayer as a religious duty, something they are obligated to do at certain times, but their hearts are drawing them, pulling them to seek the face of God. That desire we have in our own hearts to be with God will tell us more about our prayer life than full attendance at any prayer meeting. Well, Jesus then says, verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Isn't it interesting that we need to be told not to pray like the Gentiles? Jesus says, don't pray like non-believers. See, actually, one thing we have in common with those outside the kingdom is that we pray. People will pray at one point or other for something or other. But those in the kingdom, they pray differently to the Gentiles. The, the Gentiles, they, they heap up empty phrases, repeating the same things over and over again, doing all they can to try and get God's attention. To try and get God to do what they want him to do. We see an example of this in 1 Kings 18. Um, the people were, were calling out to Baal. And the, the text says that they cried out and they read on and on. See, we need to be careful that we're not praying like this. Just using empty phrases going on and on. I mean, the Lord's Prayer itself, which we're going to look at in a moment, could actually become empty phrases. You know, we, we say it, it rolls off the tongue, but no real engagement of our heart and mind. I mean... Liturgy can be so helpful, but it can also become empty phrases. Something we say with no real meaning. Of course, we need to be careful with our own jargon. Christian phrases, we rhyme off. That we know they're right, they're true, they sound good. Perhaps we're just largely unaffected by them. And then we need to be careful that, that we're, we're not trying to get God's attention because of our many words or our repetition. 
I wonder how, how we perhaps try to, to get God's attention. Perhaps we try to kind of butter God up before we ask him something. You know, we, we tell God how great he is so we can get to what we really want to ask him. Or perhaps we think, if, if it's something very serious, we'll, we'll stay awake and we'll pray all night. If we do that, God will be sure to hear. He'll answer my prayers then. The longer we pray, the more likely it is that God will answer. We, we just need to exhaust ourselves praying. Do I often wonder when people send multiple messages to ask for prayer, what, what the motive behind this is? Now, I think there's something in this that, that is good and, and actually that is very natural for fellow believers. You know, we, we reach out to brothers and sisters. We want to know, we want to feel their love and support. We want them at times to pray for us when we can't pray for ourselves. But I believe too we need to be careful that we're not actually telling ourselves if I can just get enough people to pray, then God will hear me. God's bound to answer me as I want. Jesus says, don't pray like that. Don't think like that. Don't be like the Gentiles. Listen, your, your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. Think about it. Gentiles are praying to a God. We're praying to our Father. I mean, if, if one of my children comes to me with a genuine need, I'm going to provide what they need. I don't need half the time to petition me to, to give my children what they need. And think about it. I'm flawed. I am sinful. My heart is full of mixed motives. But yet, I will always give to my children what they need. We have a perfect Father who knows what we need. Just come to Him. Just come to Him. And Jesus then, He, he gives us this example that we know of, of how those in the kingdom are to pray. We could spend weeks and weeks on this Lord's Prayer, but we're trying to just get a main point from it this morning. And this is what Jesus says. He says, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven. And isn't that remarkable? Of all the ways that Jesus could have instructed us to address God, that he tells us to address him as our Father. And of course we come to God as our Father because of the Gospel. Jesus, God's Son, came to earth to make his Father our Father too. We come aware that, that, that he's all of our fathers. And of course this happened through the cross when, when Jesus died to take the punishment for our sin. Our sin that separated us, that made us enemies of God. And because Christ has taken our punishment, we who were far off have been brought near to God. We who were enemies have become God's children. See, there's, there's nothing holding us back from coming to God. We're coming to our Father. There's, there's no past sins that are stopping us from coming to Him. 
There are no current sin struggles that, that prevent us from drawing close to him. Not, not trying to fix ourselves up before we come to him. Children, just come to him. Just come to him. Don't be burdened alone with all that life gives you. Do I feel like Emma and I are just forever telling our children, whatever it is, no matter what you've done, just come. Just come to us. Come to your Father who is in heaven. We acknowledge he's our Father, but he is God. He's the creator of all. He's the eternal king over history. One passage I often read with people to help comfort them and to grasp both the greatness of God and, and his fatherly care is Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40, we read from verse 12, so it builds up this picture of the, the greatness of God. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Just think about these questions. And marked off the heavens with a span. Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? And weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did God insult? Whom made God understand? Who taught God the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, look, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All those questions are rhetorical. There is no one like God. There is no one to whom we can compare God's greatness and power and might and understanding and wisdom. And yet we read just the verse before that. God will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. And there is that picture of God's tender, gentle care for his people. God is wanting to comfort his people. This section in Isaiah begins, comfort, comfort my people. And God brings comfort to his people by showing them both how great and awesome a God he is. And yet how tender and gentle and caring he is. We come to God as God and Father. And hallowed be your name. God, your name be honoured as holy. The desire of God's children is to honour God and recognise God for all that he is. In God, your kingdom come. The desire of God's children is for people to come evidently under the rule of Jesus. That those who are in the kingdom would grow in obedience, would come further, if you like, under the submission of Jesus. 
and that those who are not in the kingdom would recognize Jesus as king and come into the kingdom. And of course, God's name is honored when his rule is more evident. And then in a similar thought, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, there is no sin. There is perfect obedience to God. Those in the kingdom, they long for this in their lives. That's what's on their hearts to pray. They long to conform to the will of God, both in moral living and in the circumstances of their lives. Now, here's what I want us to notice. Take these first three petitions and notice the priority for the children of God. Your name, your kingdom, your will be done. Children of the kingdom, they are caught up with, they are obsessed with God. His name, his kingdom, and his will. The focus of our praying, it's not our kingdom, and our wills, and our names, true Christian prayer is God-centered prayer. And when we get God at the center, it enables us to center. It enables us to prioritize our very own lives. And so with a focus on God's name, and God's kingdom, and God's will, Jesus moves us then to make requests for ourselves from our Father. You see, we move from your to our. One writer says, I think this is helpful as we transition in the prayer, consecration to God and his will gives wonderful freedom in prayer for earthly things. We're not fretting, trying to get all the things we want and trying to get things the way we think they should be. But the whole earthly life is entrusted to the Father's loving care. The first petition for ourselves Give us this day our daily bread. Simply a prayer for God to provide what we need to keep us physically well and healthy. Food, health, finances, whatever we need to be able to do what we need to do in any given day. And it's daily. We're to be daily dependent upon God. Listen to, to Proverbs 30, verse 7 to 9. There's a prayer here. And I think it's helpful for us to grasp this idea of asking God for our daily bread. Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Now listen to this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor 
and steal and profane the name of my God. You see the point? Those in the kingdom, they are content to simply ask God to provide all they need. Not consumed with all the many wants and desires that buzz about in their hearts and minds. They ask God to provide all they need to live each day for God's name to be honoured, for his kingdom to come, and for his will to be done. And as we ask for what we need, we remember we're approaching our our Father who will give us what we need. Or perhaps will withhold from us what is for our good. And then forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Jesus further explains this in verses 14 and 15. And for if ye forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying, if you forgive someone else, God will forgive you. Your ability to forgive others is some way to earn salvation. But no, we come to God recognizing our own sin, our need for continual forgiveness and cleansing. And when we realize enormous debt that God has forgiven us. It is only natural. It's like we cannot then forgive others. We have known God's forgiveness, so we are forgiving. We pray we would continue to know, experience, and show God's forgiveness. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We recognize there is plenty of temptation to sin in any given day. The devil is working that we would sin. We are weak and we need God's strength to keep us from the way of temptation and protect us from the evil one. We are praying here that there would be no obstacles to God's will being done in our lives. I guess to sum up this prayer, and and, and to sum up the, the teaching here, those in the kingdom pray for the glory of God and that God would provide all they need to glorify God in their lives. Well, Jesus then moves on to fasting. And often we see fasting and prayer come together in Scripture. Verse 16, And when you fast, again, the presumption is those in the kingdom are regularly fasting. And by fasting... And we simply mean going without food for a a period of time, usually to focus on prayer. I think we'll often be be challenged about our prayer lives. How's your prayer life? You know, people will, will ask or wonder. 
And here Jesus challenges us, how's your fasting? Are you fasting? And he tells us how to go about this. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. And the Pharisees would have, many would have fasted twice a week and would often have made themselves unrecognisable, even neglecting hygiene, put ash on their faces, intentionally looking gloomy and weary. And the purpose, of course, is that when people saw them, they would say, goodness, are you okay? You don't look yourself. And they would say, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm just fasting. And the person may reply, well, oh, you're so good. You're so spiritual, you're so focused. Again, Jesus says, truly I say to you, that's the reward. They have received their reward in full. But, again, Jesus tells us how to do it. Verse 17, when you fast, and wash your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. If you're going to fast, don't draw attention to yourself. Okay? Brush your hair, wash your face, look normal, act normal, don't complain about being hungry, probably don't plan it for a time that there's a family meal or a work dinner organised so you have to make a big announcement, oh I'm so sorry I'm not able to, to come and eat with you today because I'm fasting. Now you may ask, why should we fast? Why, why, why should we be involved with this, this practice? And to help answer this, I, I just want to outline some biblical examples of fasting from both old and New Testament, and hopefully this will build up some kind of picture of, of a biblical practice of fasting. The first one is right back to Exodus 24. Um, Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights after the law was given, after the covenant was renewed and God had bound himself to his people. In 2 Chronicles 20, um, King Jehoshaphat was threatened battle from the Moabites and the Ammonites. And we read he, he was afraid by this threat. He set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So there we see God's people fasting together. In Ezra 8, before Ezra... Um, led the people back to Jerusalem, he proclaimed a fast. And he proclaimed this saying that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. Nehemiah 1. We're told that Nehemiah wept and mourned. He continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, confessing the sins of Israel. Esther, before she put her life in the line, and going to the king to speak for her people, Esther organized all the Jews to gather and hold a fast, she said, on behalf of herself for 
we come to the Gospels, we see Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights before beginning his public ministry. We move into Acts, we see the church in Antioch, Acts 13, they fasted and prayed before sending off Barnabas and Saul to mission. And then we see Paul and Barnabas themselves in Acts 14 praying and fasting as they appointed elders. So from those examples, we can see that God people fasted as they recommitted to God. They fasted when they faced spiritual battle, when they were grieving over sin, when they were seeking God's direction, when they were fearful and wanted God's safety and protection, when they were reaching significant milestones on their journeys, when they had concern for a brother or sister. We we see the church fasting when they wanted to act in outreach and evangelism, and then also when there were changes in church life. Now, I'm not giving this to you as any kind of exhaustive list. In fact, I believe fasting can be appropriate at at any time as a, a simple means of saying, God, I need you. I am depending on I want to focus on who you are and be changed by that. And we fast to to have our perspective realigned. John Piper helpfully says, we fast to nourish our hunger for God and to reduce our hunger for the world. And with that, I believe it can be appropriate to fast things other than food, Perhaps it's helpful to ask just what things are we too dependent upon? What are we looking to for comfort and safety and protection and strength other than God? And I believe as with prayer, your desire to fast will give some indication your desire for God himself. And remember, your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. As we said last week, surely our reward is God himself. We pray and fast to seek God. Our reward is God himself, communion, closeness with him. If I fast, if I sacrifice something, perhaps in order to spend time with my family, what is my reward? Well, the reward is time with my family. Relationship with my family, which I will never regret. Pray and fast. Take quality time with God. Build your relationship with him, you will never, ever regret it. Let's come to God now in prayer.